So I went from being the top center on the roster to the third string center on the roster, and most NFL teams don't keep three centers. So I barely made the team, ended up not even dressing the majority of that year. Uh, went into a pretty deep depression. Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Joe Hawley. He is a former NFL player. We get into his life after the NFL. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. Welcome on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, bro. So I'm curious about how you transitioned from a hard NFL life into the spiritual, energetic world you live in now. What marked that transition? You know, I'm, I don't come from the NFL, but I came from you know a very matrix, like rigid background that then suddenly like combusted into some spiritual life. What, so what were the, you before you started doing this? What did you I, do? I, was, I mean, I was, I, I came from, I graduated college two years ago. Okay. So I was going to, you know, an Ivy League school. I was like very set on, you know, like finance or something along those like lines. Like big business yeah, finance, business. like the big money stuff. Yeah, all, all, like the, all the Matrix Wall stuff. Street. Yeah, exactly yeah. all that. And then something happened. So yeah. like all of us in this, in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Seems like it's happening more and more. Yeah. Mine was a, was definitely a slow process. I mean, I, I played in the NFL for eight years, um, played football for 16, had a, you know, lived out a childhood dream and accomplished everything I put my mind to. Um, made a lot of money, had a really, you know, beautiful fiance at the time, had all the nice cars, big house. And I had this moment, there's a lot of variables that went into this. You know, I started reading books. I read my first book when I was 24, which I think if I trace it back to the genesis of my unraveling, uh, I played with Tony Gonzalez, who is one of the greatest tight ends to ever play the game of football. He's in the Hall of Fame now. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I was graced with the opportunity to, to play with him his, his final three years in Atlanta. And before his final game, he got up, and he wasn't a big rah-rah speech guy, but he got up in front of the team the Saturday night before our final game and said a few words because he had a 17-year career, played a long time. And I don't really remember everything he said, but the one thing he said, he said, there's three things that have had a direct impact on my success and, and, and who I am as a person. And I don't remember the other two, but one of the things that really stood out was, was, was the power of reading books that he shared. And that really stuck with me for some reason. And so that off season, I text him and I said, Hey man, I've been really like, you know, thinking about what you said, and is there any books that you recommend? And he re recommended a few books, but there's this this book that I got. It's the first book I ever really read intentionally. It's called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And looking back on it now, it's fascinating how many parallels there are from that book into my journey when I walked away from the NFL. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a story about this this guy, this this uh, this trial lawyer who has a heart attack, and he's you know doing all the things that he's just grinding, hustling making a ton of money, living that lifestyle, and he has a heart attack in court, and basically the doctor tells him, like, if you're going to live, you have to let go of your law practice. And so he decides to sell everything, and he goes on the spiritual journey up to the Himalaya Mountains because he feels this calling on his heart uh, to find these mystical monks that he heard about. And so he goes on this pilgrimage, ends up finding them. It's a really cool story. And a few late, few, he works with them for a couple years, and he comes back. And I think the really powerful part is the return to his old life, and one of his mentees, the people, one of the people he's mentoring at the time that wanted his life, you know, he's like a younger guy, straight out of school, like trying to be a lawyer, trying to get to the big time, 
and he comes back and he has this conversation with, with him at the end of the at end of the book, and the guy doesn't recognize him because he's so vibrant, so healthy, and he just talks about the glow in his eyes. But when he speaks, he recognizes his voice, and he's like, "Oh my God!" And that really struck with me that that health and vibrancy is so much more important than these external things that we put so much value on. And so that was the genesis. I started reading books, really that kind of started opening my mind and expanding my mind. And, you know, eventually through a lot of different variables, um, decided to walk away from the game, you know, and I, you know, my, my last year, I lost my starting job five different times in my career. For, for a wide variety of different reasons. What was that like, the pressure? Because I remember in high school, like, I getting cuffed from the start, starting on the basketball team, <laughs> that destroyed me. So I can't imagine what it's like in the NFL. Yeah. What did that feel like in that moment where you, you know, been working for years, you finally got your dream, and then they were like, oh, you can't have it. What did that feel like? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I think one thing, one of the really big moments was after my, my second year. My first year, I didn't start. I was a, a backup. I had my first opportunity to start in my second year but it was at right guard and I got drafted as a center. And so I'm a, I'm a pretty undersized center, uh, made up for that with my tenacity and my, my smarts and my uh, understanding of the game and my leadership. Um, but at, at guard, these guys are usually a lot bigger, a lot stronger, and they, they maul guys. Uh, it's just a lot more, a little bit different position. And so I played nine games at guard and I was a little bit out of position, but the starting center at the time was a 13 year vet. And so his contract was up. And they drafted me to replace him eventually. And so going into that offseason, he was not on the roster anymore. And I was the only, I was the top center on the roster. So I went into that offseason thinking I'm going to be the top dog. I'm the starting center. I was telling all my friends and just like really acting like my, my shit didn't stink. I was mm-hmm. like, this is my job. And went into the draft, the 2012 draft. Um, and as a player, it's really interesting because there's, if they draft a player in your position in the top, first or second round, it's not a good thing mm-hmm. because that they're going to give that guy every opportunity because they, they invested a, a top draft pick. So it's pretty stressful as a player to watch the draft, and you're just mm-hmm. hoping, like, don't draft somebody in my position. But I wasn't worried about it. One of my friends, who was a third-string tight end at the time, because Tony Gonzalez was set to retire, he was really nervous that they were going to draft a tight end, and he wasn't going to have a job. So he was, like, sweating bullets. I was totally good. And we decided to go to this local bar. There's probably a handful of my teammates there, and we were watching the game on the or the the, the draft on the TV. And we had traded our first first round pick uh, away to to draft Julio Jones the year before. So our first pick was in the second round, pick 55. And I'll never forget when it was like pick 53. You know, on on Twitter, the news comes a lot quicker than on the TV. I'll never forget my friend coming over to me. He's like, "Dude, you're not going to believe this." I'm like, "What?" He's like, we drafted a center with our top pick. And I, I, I kind of laughed in that moment because I didn't believe it. And I can even feel it in my heart right now. It's like, what do you mean? And then moments later, I see, you know, we drafted the, the number one center in college football. And the feelings I felt were really intense. I mean, I felt rejected. I felt betrayed. I felt humiliated. I felt all of it. And it really put me into a downward spiral of not really trusting anyone and especially the team and the organization because nobody communicated that to me. And that's one thing with the NFL, it's really challenging. I think some teams are better than others, but the way that they don't really communicate where you're at as a player, what you can do to better, to be better, uh, what you need to work on, 
Um, they kind of just, you need to show up and be the best and kind of know what they're expecting of you. Um, and so obviously there was something that they didn't see in me that I didn't know about, drafted the top center and uh, went into that, that next year going from being thinking I was going to be the starting center to, and then actually two weeks later after the draft, they signed that veteran back to a one-year deal. So I went from being the top center on the roster to the third string center on the roster. And most NFL teams don't keep three centers. So I barely made the team, ended up not even dressing the majority of that year. Uh, went into a pretty deep depression. Like I, I remember, I would, probably wouldn't have called it that back then, but looking back on it, like I was drinking every night when I'd come home from, from the football practice. I was taking a lot of pain pills, smoking a lot of weed. And yeah, it was really challenging. And I was just in this victim mindset. Like I'd go into the facility and my body language was bad. And I just like, I felt so like nobody like gave me a chance. I was waiting for a chance and nobody gave it to me. And ended up that year about halfway through, um, failed a drug test, uh, performance enhancing drug test uh, for taking Adderall. And it, the amphetamine showed up in my drug test. I didn't know at the time that that showed up on a PED test. I thought it would be like a street drug test. And ended up getting suspended for four games. And that was a, a big wake up call at that moment. I was like, oh crap, like I'm, I'm really fucking up here and I need to focus. And when I came back from that suspension, I was just re-energized to really shift the perception that the team had about me. Uh, but I came back from that, that suspension and it felt like I was walking around the facility as like this dead man walking. It was a really interesting experience because there's 53 men on the roster when someone gets suspended, the week they come back, they, they're allowed to have 54 men on the roster because they bring somebody in to replace me for that four weeks. And then they get a week to decide, it's like a buffer period, who they want to keep. So that week that I came back was really strange because I was allowed to be there because an extra person on the roster, but you know they didn't let me practice. Like I was standing on the sideline and it's like felt really shitty in the energy of everybody looking at me. And I just felt like, man, this is really off. And then it culminated in that week we were traveling to, to Detroit and um, also I'll, I'll like to state this this year we are crushing it as a team I think we, we ended up 13 and three and the number one seed in the playoffs and so our team was having really a lot of success and so I was going through this experience where I felt like I wasn't a part of the team which is really hard for me if I'm not starting and competing even when I was a backup and I was like really strongly connected to the team. If I wasn't actually playing and starting, I felt like I wasn't really contributing and that was really hard for me. I felt isolated, disconnected. So the fact that the team was doing really well and I wasn't a part of it was just really, really challenging in that way. And so I came back from that week, felt like I was a dead man walking. And, you know, on Saturday we were going to travel to Detroit and uh, play the Lions. And on Saturdays when we travel, all of our bags are laid out in the locker room so that we can put our pads in it, our helmet, and anything that we want to pack in our bags so that we can travel and the, the equipment staff takes it. Everybody's bags are on the ground except mine's up in the locker still. And back to the communication piece, nobody had communicated to me that I wasn't traveling or what was going on. It was just this energy. It felt really strange. And so I was like, you know what, nobody's talked to me. So I just pulled my bag down and started packing it. And right at that moment, the head coach, Mike Smith, walked by and he saw me and he said, Joe, what are you doing? I was unpacking my bag, coach. He's like, oh, nobody told you. You're not traveling this week. And so that was like, oh, shit. And that was when I really knew, like, the writing on the wall. Like, they're going to they're gonna cut me. And so went in, had to watch the game from my apartment by myself, you know, watch the team, the Falcons go crush the Lions, and 
get one step closer to being the number one seed and having this opportunity to go on the Super Bowl run. And I watched it alone. And it was really, sitting with those feelings and those thoughts was really challenging. Uh, my agent called me after the game. He said, hey, you know, the I think the team's going to cut you tomorrow. So I was kind of preparing for that. Sure enough, one of the scouts called me after the game. He's like, hey, make sure you come in tomorrow morning, first thing. Uh, you know, Thomas, the, the GM, and Mike, the, the head coach, want to see you. I'm like, okay. So I knew I was about to get cut. And so I, I drove in. I'll never forget this day. It was, I think it was December 23rd. It was two days before Christmas. It was an off day, so nobody was really in the facility. We had just beat the, the Lions. We were a couple games away from the playoffs. And I, I drive to the facility, and I'm just, like, replaying, like, my whole career, my whole, like, every decision I made. And I'm just like, man, trying to make sense of, like, how did I get here? And I pull up to the facility. I walk up the stairs into the head coach's office. It's a really, like, beautiful, big office. There's, like, a lounge sofa area and then this desk and then, like, all the playbooks. And I walk in there, and Thomas Dimitrov and, and Mike Smith, the GM and the head coach, are sitting down. I said, oh, Joe, come in, take a seat. And as I walked in, I literally felt like I was walking above my body because mm -hmm. there was so much adrenaline pumping in my system. And it was like this big dissociation. And I was just like, whoa, like floating, trying to be present, trying to breathe, sat down. And, you know, pretty quickly they're like, Joe, um, you know, we've decided, we've made a decision, we're going to let you go. And I was really surprised by what I felt in that moment because I hadn't felt it up to that point and the finality of the decision, when it hit me, I was just flooded with this, this deep sense of regret. And it felt really gross. It felt like it was this energy of finally feeling the responsibility of all the decisions that I made that got me in that chair about to be released, about to squander my childhood dream of playing in the NFL, and it's not anybody else's fault but mine. And that regret was just so intense. And, you know, we had a little bit of a conversation. I don't remember a lot of what I said. I was kind of blacked out. But I remember it was the first time I really stood up for myself and communicated what was on my heart. And one of the things I shared was, um, you know, if you guys go to the playoffs, you guys are going to be the number one seed. And... They brought in another guy to replace me from, from the Saints practice squad. And so I said, you know, if Todd McClure, who's the starting center at the time, if he gets hurt in the playoffs, would you trust this other guy or would you trust me to take you to the Super Bowl? And they sat back and they looked at each other as if it was like the first time that they had ever thought about that, which I find fascinating. And they looked at me and they said, you know, Joe, I guess we're going to have to trust the other guy. I said, okay, that's all I needed to know. And I turned around, walked out, and proceeded to go through the checkout process. I um, signed out with the trainers, signed the papers. I turned all my equipment in, signed the papers. And, you know, I was walking through the, the locker room just, like, grieving, like, crying. Like, this, this real intense hollowness and energy that mm -hmm. was even hard to process. Found myself back up in the office signing the final papers. And because I had been on the roster... For most of the year, if he, he, the guy was telling me, he's like, if we make it to the Super Bowl, then we'll owe you some money. Um, so I was like having that conversation. Then all of a sudden his phone rings. And he answers it. He says a few words and he's like, oh, that's strange. He said, that was Thomas Dimitrov. They want to see you in the office. 
and it was right across the hall. So I walk in, out, go back into the, the head coach's office, and they sit me down, and they say, Joe, we thought about what you said, and um, we've decided we're going to keep you on the roster. And I was like, okay, wow, yeah. And they're like, is that, like, do you want to show up and work? You're going to be the 53rd man. You're going to have to work your way back up. Is that something you want? I said, yes, sir. And two weeks later, uh, first round of the playoffs, I was dressed on the sideline as the backup for Todd McClure. Um, we ended up winning that game and then ended up losing an NFC Championship game. Um, but that was a pivotal point, not only in my career, but in my life. Because in that moment when I felt that regret and walked out of that room, I made a promise to myself that there's going to come a time when my football career is over, but I don't want it to be when I'm not ready. I don't want it to be because somebody else told me I wasn't good enough. When I'm done playing, I wanted to know that I gave the game everything I had and to leave it all on the field. And I never wanted to feel that, that feeling of regret again. And that completely shifted my career around. I ended up playing another five years. Um, and yeah, turned it around in a really big way. When did that conditional, in, in that story I hear, because I've, I've been in similar spots, not to the same extent, different back, background, but in that story is some feeling in you that you're only worthy of love or affection or admiration if you are a function, if you're good at being a football, football player, right? When did that start for you? When, when do you think that, that wound was created in you that, that made you to have these these desires and and feelings of unworthiness? It's a great question, and it's something that's very present in my life right now. Uh, I think it's been a lifelong journey, and I think a lot of, you know, as I've gone on this my own path of healing uh, and uncovering this wound, I, I, it's, the, it's the wound of rejection and the fear of rejection. And I think I've come to know that it's, it's a foundational fear that we all experience. Yeah. And it, it, it's really the disconnection from spirit feeling like we're rejected by God. And in reality, we're the ones rejecting and rejecting ourselves. And, you know, I, I went to Peru uh, to, a couple months ago on a deep pilgrimage journey, uh, working with some, some plant medicine uh, in the Sacred Valley. And, um, you know, about a month before this trip, I had an experience with my, with my father. And my father's He's not a bad dude. He's, he's, he's a great guy. But he's just, I think like many men in that generation, just not very present and kind of lives in a deep state of fear. And, uh, you know, a religious evangelical Christian in the very narrow-minded, closed-minded sense. And he... You know, I definitely see how my career, like, I was really after that approval. Mm -hmm. I, I, the only thing I've wanted my whole life, and I didn't know this at the time, is for him to, to see me, to accept me, to love me. And so about a month before this Peru trip, I had, um, I sat down with him to ask for some support. Um, I'm, I'm opening a, a retreat center 90 minutes outside of town, and I got hit with a, a pretty big, like, uh, renovation uh, cost and uh, I've put in a lot of I've invested a lot of my money in in that project and so um, not having a traditional job it's hard to get a mortgage without a pay stub and so I was like I'll ask my dad to help co-sign and support 
and um, sat down with them. And the conversation we had was really intense. Um, the feelings I left that conversation with, I felt deeply rejected by him, deeply unsupported, deeply unseen. And that, that like deep amount of anger and rage that I hadn't felt in a long time because me and my dad have never really been very close. Um, he's been always been in my life. He's never really been like abusive or a bad man, but he's just never been present. And he's mm -hmm. never really shared his life experience with me in the way that a son needs to evolve and grow. And all he would really do is push, you know, if I had a question about life, it'd be like, hey, go, go connect with Jesus. Go talk to Jesus, go to church, read the Bible. And so there's a very hollow, the, the mentorship that I really desired from him. And so I never really had an energetic connection with him. It just it was always been this kind of dull hum in the background. He just was never really present. So I was really surprised and all this rage and anger came up. And so I went into it and I processed it. And what I felt was rejected. And what I realized is that this fear of rejection has been an underlying foundational story my entire life. And it started with the church and the belief structure that I grew up in, um, feeling rejected by God, feeling unworthy by God, and the, the fear and the shame that comes with that. And then that developed this fear of being rejected by my family for who I am, for the questions I was asking. And so I learned at a very young age that it, it's not okay for me to shine bright, to be curious, to be great, to, to, to really expand into my fullest authentic self. And so there's always been a part of me that because I had this fear of being rejected, I rejected that part within myself. And what I realized is that, that showed up in every single interaction of my life. And I, I had this, developed this inferiority complex where you know, I'd be around successful people or famous people or really um, high achievers and I would feel insecure. Like these people have something I don't. And what I realized is, you know, been learning a lot about um, Jungian philosophy around the shadow and the unconscious. And there's this concept called the, the golden shadow. So a lot of people, you know, think the shadow is, you know, evil or darkness or the, the parts of yourself that are I just scary. about to ask you that, about the golden shadow. Yeah. yeah. So the golden shadow is, you know, you can put in your shadows your greatness. Your power, yeah. Your power, your light, all the things that are great about you, you can put in your shadow because they weren't accepted, received, loved yeah. when you were a kid. And so I had this massive golden shadow that I didn't really know about at the time. And what would happen is... I would project all of my greatness onto these others who I perceived as great. And they are great, but I would put them above me on this pedestal because I would project my shadow and that would make me feel unworthy less than. And so going on this journey of really understanding that I was rejecting that part of myself out of fear of being rejected. And that's the interesting thing about fear is fear manifests the very thing that you're trying to protect yourself from. And so my fear of being rejected by others means I'll just first reject myself so that I don't have to feel rejected, which is therefore kind of propelling the very story of rejection within my life. And so I went to Peru and I was able to, I worked with, uh, with a cactus, Wachuma, and a few different ceremonies. It was really beautiful. And 
um, had the opportunity actually. So after that, that connection with my dad and that conversation and all this anger and rage came up like a week later, I had the opportunity, uh, a spot opened up on this, this trip with one of my, my friends who was facilitating leading it. And he was like, you got to come. And I knew that there was this synchronicity and this opportunity to follow the thread of, I know I'm supposed to be there and I know I'm supposed to go there and, and grieve this, this wound and this feeling of needing my parents to be something for me and being able to fully let that idea go and let mm. that die. And the medicine really helped hold me in that grieving process in a really beautiful way. And it's been really beautiful over the last couple of months since coming back from that. I feel this deep sense of freedom and this expansion of who I am. And, you know, it's really fascinating because I had an objectively very successful life. I mean, I made it to one of the hardest things to do in the world, which is play in the NFL and then play eight years, starting 54 games, made $13 million. So everything's like, what are you talking about? You're, you did it all. But there's always a part of me that lived in a state of fear. And so I always think like, what, what am I actually capable of? If I was actually able to, to achieve all of that with this underlying fear of part of me was playing small, what am I actually capable of? And I'm really excited to see where this expansion takes me. In yeah, in, in my experience, first of the, the family piece, where I've gotten to it is, I have a similar experience with my father where I only, it wasn't his fault, again, nice guy, it wasn't conscious, right? What, for me it was, I only felt worthy of his love if I was smart, if I was like killer academically or uh, achieving things in an intellectual domain. So then that made me motivate myself constantly, unconsciously to be great for his approval. I never got it, obviously. Um, but where I'm at now is that my understanding is if I didn't have that shadow, if I didn't have that piece of me that needed his validation to be dominant, to be strong, to be loved, I wouldn't have the drive I'd do. I just wouldn't. I, I wouldn't want to do these things. So for me, it's kind of trans transmuting that into into something I, I love and losing like the the need to prove, but still having that force in me that that wants this thing. I realize my soul chose this. My soul chose this this move. My soul chose this shadow. I got to put it somewhere where it's, where it's, it's useful for me in in some way. You know? Yeah, finding gratitude for it, right? Yeah. Not thinking it should be anything different. Like I'm really grateful for the journey I've been on because it has, you know, provided this deep drive and passion and that's one thing I, I felt when all that anger and rage came up it was really intense and I allowed myself to express it that was one thing that I, you know I have the tools now to express it but it felt good because I knew that since I've been done playing one of the things I've been dancing with you know I played eight years in the NFL uh, when I was done playing I traveled the country in my, my van nomadically and I was just really this like free spirit nomadic really like not needing, like really in the feminine energy, like not really needing to create anything because I have this security blanket with this money. And so that, as I've gotten into my entrepreneurial journey over the last few years, really showed up in, instead of really working hard, I would just hire people to help me or like, I wasn't showing up in the same, like with the same discipline and the same tenacity and the same passion, and the same fire as I did when, what got me to being great in the NFL. And that's what's required. And sometimes it comes out in an unhealthy way, but when you're able to channel that in a positive way, it's really beautiful. And so when I felt all that anger, I was like, oh, this, this feels good because what this does is it's like, it's an energy that I can bring through as a passion into my creations. Because when I look at the rejection wound and the, the energy dynamic within my family, all it is is wounding and it's trauma. And it's the societal indoctrination of 
overlaid on this reality of what we think the world is, what we've been taught the world is, what we've been told happiness is and success looks like and what the journey of life is meant to be. And breaking down those par that paradigm is really challenging. But this experience with my father brought up all this anger and rage and I, I'm now channeling it into a passion to support this great shift that's taking place right now and this great paradigm shift and helping support people in the letting go of these stories that are no longer holding us captive. We have this opportunity to really break free and it's deep work and it's hard work and it does require a warrior spirit to really show up and be disciplined and know why you're showing up and doing it. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful for all of that and the journey I've been on and being able to channel that into the projects I'm working on is, is very powerful. Yeah, going back to something else you said about your, your family, I think it's a good point to touch upon is what helped me is kind of accept, I think we unconsciously expect our, our fathers or mothers to be who we want them to be, to give us a love that we desire in some way. What helped me, I think you referred to it in your journey, was really forcing myself to accept them exactly as they are. That my dad is this person. Um, he's not going to change ever. Mm -hmm. I can't expect him to change. My expectation of him changing and being the way I want him to be is what's creating all the suffering. Mm -hmm. So that for me, it will help a fuck ton. It can help people out there struggling with family stuff is just force yourself to accept them as they are. Like mm -hmm. really just say, okay, dad, you are this way. How can I actually give myself what I'm desiring you to give me that you never will give me? That's the journey, what's the journey for me, right? Is saying, my dad's this way, how can I love, love him for exactly that? And then how can I actually give myself what I needed him to give me? So off that point, what, how are you trying? How are you giving yourself or finding ways to give yourself what you needed your dad to give you that you didn't get? Mm. Yeah, just to speak to that a little bit, I think one of the things, because there's different parts of ourselves, right? And there is the the inner child part of our psyche that that does need our parents to be a certain thing. And as we grow older, we evolve into being able to support ourselves and care for ourselves and no longer dependent on them. Uh, and a lot of times, because we don't have the right type of, pro type of processes built into our society and culture, it's hard for that energy dynamic to shift and evolve into peers with the parents. Yeah. And one of the things that's really missing that I'm really passionate about is the lack of initiatory processes and ritual processes, especially for young boys into manhood. And there's every culture you can track around the world, indigenous tribes and ancient civilizations, they all have had rite of passage experiences built into their society and culture because they understood the psychological developmental processes that that inner child part of you needs to die for you to evolve and step into becoming a man. And because we lack that, there's that inner child part of ourselves. And so when we you know get into our 20s, it's like we want to be looked at like a man from our father's eyes, but they still look at us like children because the whole family dynamic is involved in that process. In the ancient tribes, there's stories of you know, the, 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 the kids, the, the boys would be with the women in the tribe up until they, they reached puberty, like 12 or 13 years old. And then they would, you know, there's a story of a, a tribe, I forget which tribe it is, but they would come, the, the men would all leave at night. They would paint themselves all white, like ghosts. They would do like a mock raid of the village in the middle of the night. They would kidnap the boys of this age 
and the women would know and they would, you know, oh my God, what's happening? They would take them. So it's this really frightening experience. They would take them out of the village and in a very like intense way, basically act as if they were going to kill them. And it was a very intense experience. And I'm not saying this is something that we need to do, but it just kind of proves the point of they would take them to the depths of experiencing their own death. And then towards the end of the experience, um, they would do a ceremony and they would welcome these boys who went through this death experience. They would literally have to confront their death in a very visceral way. They would welcome them back reborn as men. And they would walk back with the elders of the tribe and the whole tribe would treat those boys like men now. So the women would no longer mother them in the way they did. They would treat them like a man. Man, The, the men would start taking them and teaching them the ways of what it takes to, to be a, a strong man and to support the tribe in this way. So there's this transition period that our society lacks. And I think if you could point to one of the real issues that we're facing uh, right now, there's all these like collective systemic issues that everybody talks about, you know, like climate change and the financial systems and, you know, equality and the wealth gap and, you know, all these problems. It, it really comes down to bad leadership, immature leadership. We have a bunch of psychologically underdeveloped leaders running around in grown men bodies. And it's because we lack these initiatory processes that develop the psyche in a very mature way. Um, so I just wanted to speak to that because I think it's really powerful that um, those, 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 those kid, that, that kid in me that was feeling rejected, being able to allow that part of me to die and in order to do that, it, it, it only happens through the somatic experiencing and the grief of releasing that, that story through the body. You can't just force your way or think your way into healing. What was that initiatory experience for you? Was there one experience you had that really marked that change? Did you create your own kind of tribal tribal moment of, of initiating to your manhood? Or what was a moment where you felt like, okay, I'm a man now? Was there a moment for you? Was it a gradual journey? That was a gradual journey. I think... There's a lot of pseudo initiations within football. Um, a lot of different, like every year, it felt like a new initiation because there's a new team. I had to figure out who I was within that team and um, who I was as a leader within that team and how I was looked at. And you know, I had a wide variety of different coaches who I looked up to and and who taught me a lot. And you know, I really lacked it from my my father. And so when I started playing football my freshman year of high school, like I, that's what I fell in love with was oh, there's. There's male role models here, some good, some bad. Um, and I, I was able to gather a lot of, of my own experience of what it takes to be a man um, through my own experience. And yeah, I, I think I'm grateful for it because it really showed me a lot and taught me a lot of who I am. And being able to alchemize that journey into what I'm doing now is, uh, yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, my, mine was when my mom died, that's when I... That's when I really became a man in some mm. way. That that I wouldn't say it was some spiritual occurrence that happened or was time to go, but for me it How old were you when that happened? This was last year. So oh, for wow. me it was it really like something in me I didn't know what come of it when it happened. I was like, how the fuck is it gonna affect me? Thankfully I used to be drug addict. Thankfully that was no longer the case or, or I would not I don't think I'd be alive. Thankfully mm. I, I kicked that habit about three years ago. But something in me like died. Uh, and I don't know what I think it was this 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 coddling, this like not inner, maybe inner child, a part of me that like needed 
to be taken care of. Yeah, the nurturing yeah. energy of the mother. Yeah, part of me that needed that. I didn't even know I needed it, right? I was unconscious. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. I was close with her. We talked every day, but I didn't kind of use it that way, but I felt it was an energy. Mm-hmm. That she was giving me that energy, like unconsciously, even her just sending me that love energy-wise. Once that was clipped, I really had to learn to get it to myself. And that mm-hmm. was when I became a man, where I really didn't need that that mothering energy from my ex-girlfriend anymore or, or female, uh, future female partners, I really was able to give it to myself. Mm. I wouldn't wish that upon any man, but that really was like, that yeah. forced me How did me you to... process that grief? Because that's what it is, right? It's this intense yeah. amount of grief. Yeah, I did a lot of somatic work. Mm. Um, thankfully, I had the knowledge then. Uh, I did a lot of studies in, in this field and stuff like that mm-hmm. to know that I can't tackle this logically. I have to... So I did a fuck ton of, of like deep somatic mm-hmm. somatic work where I was definitely access- feeling it all yeah I was I, was, I went hard and I was ac- definitely access DMT for sure through, through yeah. the breath like I wasn't here I was mm-hmm. floating around but wow. it was terrifying like the, I did a, a somatic a deep somatic breath work the day after she died and I, I fully felt like I was dying because mm-hmm. I went straight into my body I had no because my I think of the ego as like bodyguards like there are bodyguards blocking us from accessing the emotion in our body and that's the thoughts we have like they're blocking us from feeling what's in within mm. so I felt that leave, leave and I was just fully in my body with all the grief stuck in it and mm. that, was, that was that was intense I literally felt like I was dying wow. but but on the other side of that I cleared a lot I could look yeah. at my, my family members it's not judgment to them there's still so much pain in their bodies they it's, don't know how to grieve it's so it's still yeah. so stuck they're doing it their own way it's okay mm-hmm. but it's just still so stuck in their, yeah. in, their, in their bodies and even not not parent wound but we all have our own grief mm-hmm. for some reason what, what was what was your grief was it the, how was it the NFL story was it did you have to do a grieving process for leaving that what was like the grief that you had to release from your body I'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information and in this break Please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. Yeah, man. I think that's what I'm really passionate about now is is really supporting elite athletes in that transition process because there's not a lot of resources. You literally die. Or, like whole, Your identity dies. Literally, yeah. Like the whole, everything I'd ever worked for, everything yeah. I'd ever thought I'd be, everything I ever wanted, I got to live it and accomplish it and it's interesting because there's always a part of me that felt like it wasn't good enough because you like you need to have that that part in order to keep going like i'm not good like i can be better i can be better i can mm-hmm. be better and so waking up out of that is like when does that journey end and I realize oh it doesn't i have to decide to to walk away from this and so my final year going into my eighth year i i, I they brought me back the, the tampa bay buccaneers brought me back to a, on a one-year contract uh, they said I was to compete uh, for my starting job once again with a younger guy, but what I realized is they were just bringing me back to mentor this younger guy uh, at my position. And so I lost my starting job for the fifth time in my career. And I uh, I knew, you know, week one, uh, I had lost this, like, passion to, like, go get my job back. And in that moment, I knew it was like, okay, this is going to be my final year. And that was the moment that started really stripping away my life. And I was engaged at the time, so I told my my fiance uh, that I was I was this is gonna be my last year playing, and uh, really surprised by how unsupportive she was of that. I mean, I guess I'm not surprised. There's a it it, it made me realize how it's not just my attachments to this identity, but her attachments to being a football NFL player's wife. And the money that comes with that, the fame, the recognition, uh, and she didn't want to let go of that. 
Are so, you still with her? Or, or, no, or? we we that that because she was unsupportive, it really showed her true colors of oh, she loves me for this thing that I am, but not the deeper parts. And what I realized through that journey is how can I expect anyone to love me for who I am when I don't know who I am? And so one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, that was one really hard year, um, but four weeks before my final game, uh, I finally broke broke up with her. And that was a whole process. So we went to therapy, went to couples therapy, went to individual therapy, and we got to a point where I was like, I, I can't do this. And um, it was actually a really insane moment I had uh, sitting, in, and it's funny how we like kind of manifest um, the energy within a partnership unconsciously that represents our parents' energy yeah, in yeah, partnership. And so she was a little bit, you know, emotionally abusive. Um, I felt like didn't really care for my feelings. And I had this moment when I was trying to share, like, like what how I was feeling and how I was hurt. And I forget exactly what it was. It doesn't really matter. But I just didn't feel seen or heard. And it, it, she turned it on me. And I had this moment where I just gave up. And I was like, I love this woman so much. I don't want to argue with her. So I'll just, I'll just give up. And I had this literally flash of my whole life and how my dad and my mom ended up where they're at because my dad gave up. The reason he wasn't present, the reason he's not vibrant is because he decided I'm just going to give all my power away to this woman. And when I saw that literally flash in front of my eyes, that's when I knew I was like, I, this is where I break the cycle. This is where I choose differently. This is where I choose to love myself more than anyone else and realizing now that I can only love another to the extent that I love myself. And so I can't expect this person to love me if I don't even know how to love myself. And so it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It felt like I was literally ripping out my own heart and choosing to do that. And it took some time to decouple that. And it was four weeks before my final game and played my final game. Uh, luckily, you know, I had an opportunity to, to there's a, a couple people that went on IR towards the end of the season. So I got to play and start my final four games, which was a really cool experience because like I shared earlier, I wanted to walk away on my own terms, not because I couldn't compete anymore, but because I decided it was my, my time to go. And I'm grateful that the universe gave me this opportunity to play the final four games of my career. Uh, cause I played probably some of the best football I ever played. Um, and then like a week after the, my final game, I, was sitting in my apartment and the energy was still filled with the grief from this breakup and the finality of never being able to play the game that I loved sank in and I just started crying. It, it felt like there's literally like a void in my chest that was just like, like a torrent and it was just like so intense and so much energy and so much feeling. And so that's what, uh, that's what made me, made me decide to go on a journey, a pilgrimage of my own and my own initiation. It was... That could have been your initiation of the whole experience. 100%. You know, this calling on my heart that it's time to walk away, not really knowing why, but trusting it and going through the challenges of stripping away all the things and actively participating in that and then getting to a point where, you know, I didn't have the language for it at the time, but intuitively I was like, I need to, I need to go on a, a journey, a pilgrimage, a self-discovery. I need to figure out who I am. And so... I wanted to strip it all away, and I continued to do yeah. so. I want to speak to that. That decision you made to let her go is, is massive. Like, I think 
most men, if you look at most marriages, honestly, this is me being 100% real. If you look at most marriages, it's men like that who couldn't make the decision. They realize, you know, three, four years spent with this woman, they were just like, you know what? I can't fucking let this go. I just have to settle for this, this bullshit. I have to settle for this treatment. I can't be fucked to, to go out into the world and do it again. It's just like settling a mediocrity. And yeah, even, like, I had this woman, often. I had this woman on my, on my podcast, this uh, hormone specialist, who literally said that for a fact that a man's testosterone is, is quite literally dependent on a, on a woman who respects him at home. Oh, fascinating. That, like, literally, like, men's testosterone levels would get, get tanked mm. if their spouse doesn't respect them. Mm. And that's why you see so many, most men who I see are just, I don't mean it's judgmental, but are weak and, and they don't seem, like, strong and virile. I ask about the relationships. They have a woman who just doesn't respect them at all. Yeah, you know why that is, is because they give their power away to this woman because they love her so much, but that woman, what they need is not to be the leader of the household. They need the man to show up and be the leader of the household. And the way you do that is by having the courage to go through and follow through on your passions that God places on your heart of your of your deeper purpose and going on the journey of, I know why I'm here, I know what I'm here to do. And when a woman, that's what attracts a woman to a yeah. man. And then it, it erodes because of our societal structure into like, okay, I need to, and, and the woman's gonna try and take that power. And it's like the masculine, healthy masculine of holding that loving presence and that energy of being the leader and the driver. And obviously there's energy dynamics in here that's not just like so binary with just male, female, but being able to drive towards your purpose is what earns the respect from the female and the support. So it's really fascinating, those dynamics, man, wow. Yeah, it, for sure, my, my experience, I have a similar experience to you, I had to, I kind of saw that in a way, you had to let go of that, even unconscious, maybe you didn't know it, but some hard calling made you let go of that so you could then find your deep purpose by like going alone, right? Imagine if that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You would never have found your, your true calling from that experience, right? Yeah. For me, I saw, I had like a vision like you. I was with my, a girlfriend of mine for three years. I thought I was going to marry her, loved her deeply. But I saw this thing of, I had this deep vision. I can't go to where I'm trying to manifest uh, successfully-wise, like purpose-wise with her. I can't. I, mm. I saw it very clearly multiple times. And it, it was deeper, right? Now, now I haven't been away from it for, you know, about six months. I can see, fuck, I, I had to discover all this this stuff outside of her. Now I really know who I am in some way. Mm. So that that's another initiation of, of some sort. And, yeah. and too many men just, just don't do it. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you got to know who you are. And you got to love yourself, you know? It's like that people fall in love with that new relationship energy, you know, that honeymoon phase. You know Young's theory on it? No, tell it's, me. It, it's, it's fascinating. He believes that that men especially project their soul onto women, right? In, in, in modern day and age, um, we live in the least spiritual era ever, right? And we have we have a need to be spiritual, I think. Even if you don't believe in it, I believe in it personally, but there's still an unconscious need to be spiritual, right? If you look at the history of humankind, we've been drawing pictures of God since the cave, uh, cave um, hunter-gatherer era. So we always needed to believe in something outside of us throughout human history. It's been mm -hmm. part of our evolution. So when we don't do it, we end, our, our, soul, our souls or our bodies end up doing it for us in some kind of way. And love becomes that religion. So men will look at a new beautiful woman and be like, <gasps> and project this divinity onto them. this like God onto them. And then they'll treat her like a God and, and make her feel responsible for it, making them feel good all the time. And then when that inevitably, inevitably goes away and they're human, you see a human woman in front of you, men will then look for the next honeymoon phase mm. to be like, oh, I need that, that feeling again. So that the dance, in, in my understanding of it, is to love is cultivating a relationship with your soul, yourself, that beautiful yeah. feminine soul in yourself as a man and then loving a human on, on, on the other side of it. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, that's powerful. And one thing, I mean, me and my partner, we're in an open relationship. Mm. And so one of the things that we've decided in our partnership is the journey and our commitment and vows for one another is I, I, I vow to love myself because the more I can love myself, the more I can love you. And if she does the same, and we, so we have this sovereign energy and, you know, I think relationships get so enmeshed, but when two holes come together, it's not, people look for the one to complete them and it's ha two halves to a whole. It's in you. It's in you. You got, you got to find that other half within yourself. And once you do that, find another whole person and being able to go on the journey to support each other. Because I don't truly believe like any relationship is, is forever eternity. I believe eternity is right now. And so if this relationship is serving us right now, and relationships are just the greatest mirror. I mean, one of my biggest woundings was my mother wound. And I, I didn't want to be responsible for my mother's feelings. And I talked about, you know, a little bit of the narcissism and emotional abuse that I experienced was, and this fascinating, the pattern that all of this showed up in my relationships unconsciously is when I would share something that would hurt their feelings, like I just don't want to be responsible for it. And I got that from my mom. And so when I wa walked away from my relationship and I was in the van traveling nomadic free, I, I really learned who I am. And I found that, that happiness and that, that centeredness and that alignment within myself. And what happened is I, there's, there's wounds and there's growth that can only happen within relationship, within that mirror. And so being with Sarah, my partner, and sticking with it has been, there's been moments where I'm like, I just, I wanna leave this, I wanna detach, I wanna be free. But that, that's not me growing and me sitting in the fire and being able to alchemize, like what, how am I showing up? What is this teaching me about myself? And we've gone through some really deep experiences where we've come back together in a really beautiful way. And being able to, you know, we've both talked about our, one of our biggest ideals is freedom and being able to be free. And I think there's a lot of people that do open relationships and they, they just, they do it from a very immature, unconscious way of like, either fear of commitment or this, especially as men desire to sleep with other women and have that. Hedonistic in some way. Yeah, yeah, the pleasure and seeking that like new new energy or whatever it is. For us, it's, for me, it's been, I don't want to navigate, I have a big heart and I don't want to navigate life with a closed heart in certain situations. I want to be able to navigate with an open heart. And what I found is if I meet an attractive woman and there's an energy connection and I can feel it, if I didn't have this open relationship, which our open relationship is based on the foundation of truth. And so me being able to share, like I had a connection with this woman, not, not projecting where it's going to go or anything, but being able to just be fully honest and transparent with that is really powerful. And if we didn't have that open, truthful dynamic, if, if there, if I felt that energy, there'd be a guilt of like, Oh, I'm not supposed to like a traditional marriage. Like, Oh, I'm not supposed to do this. So I close my heart off and I'm like, I'm not even going to look at this person. I'm not going to talk to him because I just feel guilty. Yeah. Now, because we're in an open, truthful dynamic, I'm able to navigate life with an open heart and experience these connections that happen all the time and be able to not attach a story of like, what does this mean? But being able to connect with people and that alone for me is very fulfilling. There's yeah. very few times I'm like, I go end up sleeping with people. I mean, I've had a few different partners, but it's that, that ability to navigate life with an open heart is the freedom that I desire. And I don't want to close it off because I feel guilty of a relationship. I'd rather be in truth and share what's actually taking place. Because it's not just, I mean, I can't control when connections happen, but yeah. I can communicate them with my partner and include her in that experience, which has been really expansive for both of us. How do you manage like levels of love in a way? What if you were to 
like fall in love with someone outside of her? How'd that go? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think right now I'm not really available for that. Um, I think, um, you know, I have a another partner, and it's very like easygoing, and she's not. It's very casual. She's not looking for like a serious partner in me because I've clearly communicated like I'm married. I have a kid. I have building a business. A lot of different projects. Don't have a lot of time to invest in like a deep relationship, a partnership. Um, but you know, me and Sarah talk about that all the time. It's like if that comes up, then being able to communicate through that and understanding like that that new relationship energy is always going to feel like that. It's always going to feel like I found the one, and it's going to feel more exciting than maybe me and Sarah, but if I'm open and honest with her about the energy I'm feeling with another and I bring that energy into our relationship, that new relationship energy, I found it actually enlivens our sex life, enlivens our connection, enlivens and reconnects us in a beautiful way. And so it's really being open and honest with Sarah, my partner, and then open and honest with these potential partners and being fully truth, like, hey, this is where I'm at. And communicating, is this something that you're open for? Um, because I'm not available for, you know, being on the phone every night. Like I just got responsibilities, you know, so it's just a different energy and every single with open relationship, this is another thing. It's not like you get to a point where you figured it out because every single connection is different Mm -hmm. and that's very fascinating. So every different connection, um, communicating it differently, it brings up different stuff within all the dynamics and being able to communicate and it can be exhausting at times too and that's why it's it's not like doing it with reverence and sacredness and not just like free floating around just like kind of sharing energy and in that way how do do you manage your ego if she meets someone oh man yeah i haven't really had to experience that in a very deep way yet she's had uh one experience um that was just like an opportunity to go you know hang out with another couple which was beautiful for for her and you know, what we talk about is being really patient with it and um, building trust. And so for me, is she's been in open relationships before, so she has a lot more experience with this than I do. And so for me, when, I, when she first told me, it was like, you know, the, the intensity <laughs> in my heart and the constriction, like, oh, God, what does this mean? And her being patient with me and us working through it and me feeling those emotions and talking about it and then, you know, going and hanging out with them, but setting a boundary of like, hey, don't necessarily like sleep with them yet. And like, what is that like? And slowly building that trust with everybody involved. And then getting to a point where it's like, okay, I feel comfortable with it now. I trust them. I trust you. I trust the experience. Like, let's move through that together. Um, but again, that's different with every single yeah. connection. And so she just went through, I mean, we have a two-year-old. And so the last couple of years, she's all of her energy and sexual drive is really going into building this human. Um, so I know that's going to evolve as Luca gets older and she's more open for those connections. That's definitely something I'm going to have to process. Yeah, that's why I have no judgment for people who do it for, my, for myself. It's that... I would just like, my ego's huge in many ways. My mom was never home much when I was a kid, so I had this like unconscious need to like hold on to her. Like, whenever every night for me was her like running away from home and me like mm. grabbing her ankle, being like, don't go, don't go. Yeah. So for me, there's like this like jealousy that rises out of that. And I feel the jealousy. It's more so that if I knew a person I love was like out there with someone else, I just, it'd be too much for me. In, in it's the like moment. a fear of abandonment, right? Like yeah. they're going to abandon you for yeah. this other person. Yeah, it'd be like re traumatized a lot of stuff. It totally. Maybe, maybe it'll grow, but it's just something that for now I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do. It, it, it would bring a lot of things to And also I have had like sex addiction in the past and stuff. So it's like, I don't know if I'd bring the best out of me if I, you know, were, were to do that. But it's just that main thing. I don't know if I could sit with that feeling. Totally. You yeah. got to know thyself. And yeah. that's why that with us, it's the patience thing. Like yeah. different emotions come up in different times. Like, 
you know, even someone I've been seeing for a couple months and we've worked through it and we're feeling really good, like there might be something that triggers Sarah that's like, oh, and she just feels something. And so being able to, to hold the space for that and not taking it on, but being able to create safety within myself and safety within her. And I'm still learning that. I mean, I, mean, I have challenges too, because my wounding is like, I want to pull away because I don't want to feel responsible for her feelings. So it's been this challenge of like holding her in her feelings without taking them on. Um, but it's definitely a process. Bro. When did you meet her? Did you meet her after the, the NFL or, or when did you yeah, meet her? Yeah, I met her. Uh, I was in Fit for Service, the Aubrey Marcus community in 2019. And she was in the same community as a year-long cohort. We did a few different summits. And what's really fascinating is there's 150 people in it. And we all had a, we had a lot of the same friends, but we never actually connected. And we were going both going through our own different relationships and stuff like that. So the timing wasn't really right. And then First weekend of March 2020, we went to a, a retreat one of our friends was putting on, and it was the first time we connected and definitely felt the energy there. And so we're like, let's stay connected. And, um, you know, I was traveling the whole month of March. I was going to Phoenix, Tampa, then San Diego, L.A., San Francisco, and then New York. Like, I was just on this, like, traveling kick, going to all these different places. And she was actually going to be down. She lived in Colorado at the time. She was going to be down in Austin during mid-March to, to do some business stuff. And we were like staying in touch, voice noting, and I was like, oh man, it's, we're not gonna be able to make it happen because I'm gonna be traveling, but we'll make it happen at some point. Um, she was gonna be going to Guatemala right after that. And mid-March when I was in Phoenix is when the pandemic really started hitting. And I was there for spring training to watch some baseball with my, with my dad and my brother. And spring, spring training got canceled while I was in the air flying. And so I was like, oh, this is like a real thing that's happening. The NBA got canceled. All these things started getting canceled. Then all my events I was traveling to started getting canceled. It all started shutting down really quick. So I hit her up. I'm like, hey, looks like the world's uh, going pretty crazy. Um, I'm going to drive back. I have a rental car. I don't want to fly because I don't know what this thing is. I want to drive back to Austin. And if you're going to be there, I'd love to see you. And um, this is when I really fell in love with her is I got a voice note back and she's like, hey, Joe, I had a real honest conversation with myself this morning and all of my stuff that I was supposed to be down in Austin for got canceled too. Uh, and the only reason I'm coming down is to see you. And the fact that she had the courage to say that mm -hmm. and be honest and truthful was like really powerful for me. And so she drove from Colorado 14 hours down to Austin. I drove from Phoenix down to Austin and we went on our first date in mid-March 2020 and there was like nobody out and it was like before the, all the restaurants closed and she stayed the night and we had a really good time and the next morning she was like she's like hey it looks like the the world's getting pretty crazy like should i stay here it looks like they're locking down everything and i was like yeah why, why not no way yeah and so she ended up staying there we we, we did the quarantine together um it's crazy three months later she was pregnant <laughs> that's an insane story yeah do you were you in that three month period where you feel like it was right the whole time? Like is this a do you yeah. felt like we ever like oh, get the fuck out of here? We ever like this is this is what's meant to be? Yeah, it was really it was really interesting because it was really it was a bubble yeah. of this new relationship energy, and uh, it was really beautiful because we went from not really knowing each other to living with each other. It's and, I never heard something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and um, throughout that, I mean, it, like time slowed down during that period too. Yeah. It was really interesting, and we had a really powerful experience connecting with each other and. Um, we had a few different uh, experiences that really brought us closer. Like her period was late, like the cut, like two months in, and we're like, "Oh shit!" Like three days late, you know? Is it, what does this mean? We didn't really like talk about it. And then like finally, her period came, and it was like, "She, said, hey, my period came." It was like, "Okay." And then we talked. It was like, "Would you be okay with if we had a kid?" And so that kind of opened the conversation of that. And then 
you know, we went to uh, her house in Colorado and met with our friends for the first time. There's like a group of five people and it was the first interaction since the pandemic. Um, and we were really nervous because we had this bubble that we lived in with just each other. And so it's like, how do we interact as a partnership within like as the world opens up? And so we yeah. started having those conversations and we actually went to an ayahuasca ceremony in Colorado together and she had a really intense experience and this soul came to her in the ceremony in the visionary space and said, I want you and Joe to be my parents. And oh. he, um, she went through this big ego death and she's, he, the soul is like, for me to come in uh, to your guys' life, you need to, you need to die. And I think what it, the soul was talking about is this, this idea, cause she's really professionally minded. She's a really badass entrepreneur. She's been an entrepreneur her whole life and um, had multiple businesses. And so uh, what, what the soul was referring to is like, in order for me to come, like you're gonna have to let all that go. Be mom. Yeah, and be a mom. And so she went through this really challenging thing and she was really nervous about telling me that. And so the next day she was like, hey, like this is, I had this experience in ceremony. It's like really hard for me to tell you because we'd only known each other three months. And she's like, this soul came to me and said, I want you and Joe to be my parents. And that was the first moment I was like, oh, wow. And I started feeling into it. And I already felt this like fatherly energy coming online. And I'm really beautiful. I'm really grateful that it happened in that way because it wasn't like the traditional route where, you know, you, you with a partner a couple years, you're like, okay, now it's time to get married and let's get a house. And then, okay, let's start a family. There's this soul that came and said, I want you to be my dad. And it felt so much bigger than me. And she told me that and was feeling into it. And then uh, like a, the next day we were at the house, she went to get some groceries and she came back and she's like, hey, a really weird experience happened at the store. I was holding the grocery basket like this and some random guy was like, I know a mother when I see one, the way you're holding that basket. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, that's so weird. Like, why would that guy tell me that? And so she went immediately bought a couple of pregnancy tests. She came back home and she's like, I, I don't think I'm pregnant because ayahuasca really messes my cycle up sometimes. And so I'm going to do these, uh, do these P tests, these pregnancy tests. And she did it and she ended up being pregnant. And, uh, she was actually seven days pregnant during the ceremony before the soul came mm -hmm. and said, I want you to be my parents. Do you feel that level of unconditional love you're missing from your ex-girlfriend with her? Like, do you feel like you can be loved for who you are not being an NFL star? Like, do you feel that with her strongly? You can yeah. just be loved for just being, being you. Yeah. How, how, how much better does that feel? Yeah, it feels, it feels good. I think it's really it comes back to me loving myself. And, you know, the last three years we've been together have been a deep journey of self-love. And so being with somebody that is on a similar path of growth and expansion uh, and being able to be mirrors for each other and, and hold each other, because it's really interesting, you know, I think this is probably across the board, I would say, uh, for the most part. But we've, we've, we, end, we, we tend to magnetize towards energetic signatures that play perfectly into each other's woundings. Yeah, for sure. And so my, her, her wounding, her main wounding is her father wound. And her father, she talks about this publicly, is uh, left her when she was between 10 and 14, lived in another state, she's Australian, in Australia. And she didn't find out until four years later that he actually had started another family. And he had just said, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna come back. And so she ended up finding out that he had totally abandoned her. And so her biggest fear is, is abandonment of me abandoning her. And fascinating how that plays perfectly into my, I don't want to be responsible for your feelings. So me feeling responsible if I leave 
that it's just going to destroy destroy her. So I'm holding this this weight of I don't want to hold your expectation of me being here because I want to be free. But then me being able to show up in that healthy masculine of like I'm not going to leave you, and we're going to continue to grow and evolve together. And the fact that we have a kid, I remind her all the time like we are in relationship for the rest of our lives because we're parents, this beautiful soul. And so how do we want our relationship to look and expand and grow? And it can evolve in so many different ways and we can communicate through that. But we, I'm not leaving you. Like we're in relationship and that relationship is going to continue to evolve and it's up to both of us to grow. And whether we're together in a romantic way the rest of our lives or we continue to evolve into different ways, we're open to having those conversations. But, you know, standing in that strength of I'm not going to leave you. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not responsible for your feelings, but I can hold you and love you and holding that energy and, and her being able to hold me and my feelings and being able to allow me to speak my truth and the things that may hurt me that I feel like my mom never really was able to hold has been very, very healing for both of us. Yeah, I believe a conscious relationship is the ace card in healing because I think uh, our love wounds or our parental wounds are the deepest ones we have, right? Mm-hmm. And often our wounds are just so much so coated in shame that when we feel seen for them, they kind of just, just release and vanish. So if you have a conscious relationship where you can say, without, I think people get it wrong as you like project the need to be fixed, where you're like, I'm having this trigger and it's your fault, like do something to fix it. That's, don't do that. But for, for me, it, it's basically just speaking to it, saying, when this happened, I, I felt this. I'm not asking you to, that you're wrong or to do something different. Just like see me for this. Just mm-hmm. just hold my hand while I, I just like feel this this process. Just feeling like that feminine energy with you or masculine on the opposite side while someone expresses their wounding, it makes a dramatic shift in the healing process. You start feeling seen what you couldn't be you start feeling seen for what you couldn't feel seen for as a kid. And that's yeah. a huge shift. Yeah, we had a really beautiful experience with a therapist when we were going through a really tough time together uh, probably about a year ago and in that therapy session um, we were able to access one of my core wounds with my mother and not feeling seen or heard in my feelings and because I couldn't give her the reassurance that she wanted but she which would trigger her and pull her away and so because we had a third-party mediator there the, the therapist was able to hold the space and allow me to go into those feelings and allow Sarah to witness that process of me just feeling the energy and being held and letting go and being seen. And, and what we were able to work through that is, is when I, like being able to advocate for that part of myself. And, you know, at times when Sarah, when I say something that is vulnerable or I'm processing, I just need to be held and she snapped snap kind of triggers and start saying how it affects her and what her feelings are. Now I have the tools to say, hey, Sarah, like, I really appreciate what you're sharing as well, but I don't feel seen and heard in this and just advocating. I'm going to advocate for that part of myself right now. Can you just, can you just say like, just sit here and hold me just for a second. Just like, let's just pause and just honor what I'm feeling. And then we can move the conversation and energy. And that little thing, like being able to advocate for that part of myself and, and even the language of parts work, I really like because it's, there's a part of me. It's not the whole me. It's the part of me that feels hurt right now. And so I just need to feel seen and heard and held in that, that part. And then once that happens, it's like, okay, I feel safe again. My nervous system's regulated. Now let's continue the conversation. Yeah, how does the, I'm always curious about how our shadows affect our relationships. So, you know, 
the shadow of the the NFL for you of, of feeling you know love for being a function or that regret that grief. How has it shown up in your relationship? How are you managing managing that? Like for me, I have my one of my shadows is, is I'm a perfectionist in many ways. Like I only feel good if my expectations of what I think life should be are there. Whether it be some of my numbers on a podcast or money, or whatever, it's like I only can feel good if I have a perfect standard, even eternally, right? If I feel good all the time and my thoughts are good, I'm like, I'm I'm a good person. But if they're not, I'm like, fuck, what the fuck am I doing? So then I'll project onto a partner of mine and be like, if they're in some shit, I'll expect them to be perfect. That's my thing. So how does that? How does your wounding, from like a professional standpoint, or in, in your body, affect your relationship? What's like the core wound that you bring that you're trying to work through? Yeah, I think within relationship, it's kind of what I've what I've already shared with the uh, with the feeling, not wanting to feel responsible for other people's feelings. Is, and, there, is there rejection stuff there too? You talk about rejection, feeling the problem, feeling rejected over your career. Does that show up here too? Yeah, rejection and abandonment. I have an abandonment wound as well. I think we all have all the wounds, and so if I take care of myself and I'm not responsible for anyone, then I'll never get hurt. Yeah. So there's that vulnerability of allowing myself to be to, to be to rely on someone else and to lean on someone else and to be held by someone else and you know I, I think it's been really cool within our relationship because both of you know my, my biggest ideal is freedom and I want to be free I want to feel free I want to continue to strive for deeper levels of freedom which is really the drive that's allowed me to question deeper paradigms and psychological processes and letting goes of these structures of what I think I needed to be and what reality is and always thought that freedom was just me being in my van on the road alone with my dog. But I've accessed levels of freedom I didn't even know were possible within this relationship. And it's been really, really beautiful to continue to expand um, and access that, uh, which I never thought possible within relationship, but it's actually deepened it within relationship. I feel freer now than I ever have. Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive. That's a masculine essence in a way, is searching mm-hmm. for freedom. Mm-hmm. We think we can only do it in our egoistic ways of going on a van or, you know, taking a solo journey, but it often comes up in, in relationships. To, to end here on this question, how has how have you become more free in, in a relationship? How have I become more free? Like how is it actually, you referred to saying you felt, you thought you'd feel more free in a van, but you actually feel more free with someone else. I think one thing Sarah's really taught me that I'm extremely grateful for is the power of truth. And bringing that stuff out of the shadow and allowing it to be seen. And that's one of her biggest ideals is truth and being in truth, even the hard truth, speaking the truth. And because she's challenged me in that way and created a safe space for me to work through my wounding, because a lot of times like I keep stuff in the shadow because if I say it, it's going to hurt this person I love which is the mother wound. If I say something that I feel and it hurts my mom, like I'll just hold on to it because I can carry the weight of that myself. And so I was carrying a lot of this weight and realizing I don't have to. And because I've been able to access that truth, it's shown up in strength in our relationship, but it's also allowed me to navigate life with a lot more freedom and being truthful with everybody I come in contact with. And even, you know, I meet a woman now that I feel a connection with, like instead of being like, oh, I'm, I'm married, I have a kid, and instead of like keeping those details because I'm scared of what it's gonna do to this connection, because I've had experiences where I'm, I say that and the woman's like, oh, I'm like not interested anymore. Like, But if I don't say that because I, I keep it in the shadow and I explore this connection for a few weeks and all of a sudden I say, hey, by the way, or they find out that I'm married and they're like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm being honest and truthful with you up front. And it's been really cool because even women that might not necessarily like understand open relationship or that dynamic or be in one themselves, they appreciate that so much that a lot of those relationships have evolved into friendships or connections. But t taking that stuff out of the shadow and just really laying it all on the table is one of the, the most profound lessons I've learned. And, and I'm super grateful for it. And I think, I think it's something that the world needs a lot more of is that, that feeling safe enough to really speak, speak the truth and bring in that shadow into the light. Yeah, because what you're saying is one thing, noticing in yourself is different to feel free enough to express to other people, to say, mm -hmm. hey, this is me. Like, see me, see me for it, accept me for it, accept me for all this stuff I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. It's a different experience than just seeing it for yourself oh, in some way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your, your beautiful, amazing story. It's truly a, one that I commend you on being where you are now. Because mm. I think most people in your position would be, you know, drinking a bottle of whiskey each night or, or being stuck on, oh, I could have been this and that. But you truly come to terms with what happened and, and are building a beautiful path for you forward. So all yeah. power to you. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. This studio is freaking epic. I love the, the New Age Sage, man. Wishing you the best. And yeah, man, it's what I'm really passionate about is supporting specifically elite athletes in that transition and also, you know, helping you know, high impact leaders and entrepreneurs go through these processes so that they can really drop into the heart, learn to love themselves, understand themselves and bring that energy of the heart into what they're doing in the world. And so alchemizing my journey and my lessons into the work that I'm doing now has been really powerful and I'm really grateful for all of it and grateful for the opportunity to drop in with you, brother. And of course, tell people about your podcast where they can find you, all that, all that good stuff. Cool. You can find me on Instagram at joe.holly. And my podcast is called Life Beyond the Game, where I bring on former elite athletes to talk about the transition process and the psychological processes that we go through and how those journeys have propelled us on a deeper journey of self-discovery and healing with the, the intention to inspire uh, anyone who may be going through their own transition in life, which we're all going through a transition at this point because we're all moving through this great big paradigm shift. And also just uh, launched uh, a community I've been doing these white water rafting wilderness expeditions the last few years, and like I've spoke about through the show, uh, I'm really passionate since leaving football about building community because one of the things that, you know, it's a loss of identity, loss of purpose, and loss of community, that locker room feel, and healing, I believe, can only really take place within community, being seen and witnessed within community. So really powerful about, you know, what does community look like, how to build community. And so over the last three years, I've really learned and grown and expanded in these these understandings. And you can't just build community because you want to. You have to go through some type of experiential process to create those unbreakable bonds, to break down the walls of who we think we need to be so that we can really shine for who we are. And so um, launching a community, applications are open now for the next couple of weeks through through mid-May. Mid I don't know when this podcast is going live. Um, but it's specifically for high impact leaders, entrepreneurs, and influential visionaries. Uh, there's 40 founding member spots, uh, and we're using these whitewater rafting wilderness expeditions as an experiential process, as an initiation into the community to build the foundation. And then I have really cool visions for how that community, uh, we can leverage the energy of a collective to have greater impact in the world than we could ever have individually. So the vision is to really bring these high impact influential change makers together to facilitate uh, greater change in the world um, through the the energy of our hearts and how we implement that into our businesses and creations. And so that's called the Heart Collective. You can go to theheartcollective.com. It's H-A-R-T, 
Um, and yeah, would love for anybody who feels that the call to be a part of that to apply. Great. Well, thank you, man. I yeah, appreciate bro. it. Check it out.